You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. As I said, Matthew 5, looking at verses 17 to 20. Today in our text, and just by way of brief introduction here, Jesus, again, so Sermon on the Mount, he's like preaching to this group of people uh, on the uh, side of a mountain or on a mountain, and he is declaring now with life-changing clarity... Uh, Three main things here today. He's declaring um, details as to his personhood, uh, his role, like why he came and what he is seeking to do or will do, and also his mission. So his personhood, his role, and his mission. And he's not saying it explicitly, like it's clear, but many will hear but not hear, if that makes sense. Many will be there, but they may not fully understand what Jesus is actually saying. However, if you are there and you truly hear and you truly have eyes to see, then here's what you're going to understand from Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20. If the Holy Spirit reveals to you the content of this truth, you will know this. You will see that Jesus is the answer to the law. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. You will see that Jesus is the answer to true greatness in this life. A life lived in Christ is a life lived in true greatness, defined by him. And you will see this, and this is the biggest one maybe in the sense of our life change. You will see that Jesus alone is the answer to righteousness that leads to everlasting life. That's a biggie, all right? So if we truly understand and pick up what Jesus is putting down in this sermon, we're going to start to uh, have revealed to us these massive, again, moments of truth. So There's a lot going on today in our text, pretty significant moves. And so again, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will give great clarity. I was encouraged myself to go through this text in detail I haven't done previously, and I'm really praying the Holy Spirit will encourage you as well. So just contextually, as we approach Matthew 5, verse 17, remember when Jesus begins his ministry, okay? When he begins his teaching ministry, right, he's alive for 30 years, then his teaching ministry begins. He was kind of staying low and quiet and stuff, but he starts his teaching ministry, and from the moment he starts teaching, he starts communicating with an authority that's never uh, been heard before. And this authority, again, being the Son of God, it, it creates quite a disturbance uh, among the teachers of the law. Like, they are not happy with what they are hearing, and they are so threatened with the authority that Jesus is teaching with. Jesus also teaches about a kingdom that boasts of extraordinary power and hope. This would be alarming to the religious leaders who are listening to. Like, what, what is this kingdom that you are for? Who are you? How dare you say such things is largely how they responded, again, through most of what Jesus taught. Jesus will also then speak of a righteousness that is impossible by human effort. Now that's going to mess up some listeners. Like they're going to be confused and say, what is he talking? Who can possibly achieve such a standard? But that's what Jesus was saying. You can't achieve such a standard. You need a righteousness that is above you. You need a righteousness that is greater than you. But those who can truly hear and see, they will understand, as Jesus teaches before them, they will understand Jesus is the answer that they have been waiting for their entire lives, and the world has been waiting for ever since sin entered into the world. For those who can truly hear, they will see this and hear this. They will see Jesus is the fulfillment, and Jesus alone is the fulfillment of all the promises 
of God. Okay, so that's kind of what's going to happen today. It's a big day. Again, Lord, help us and teach us and allow us to remain attentive. Matthew 5, verse 7, take a look. Here's what Jesus says. He says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, well, not an iota nor a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Wow, wow. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, listen to this statement, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, that's a mouthful. I think if you read that just once through, you'd be like, I have no idea what's going on. But let's try to get understanding here together, okay, with three main points today. Number one, Christ came as the fulfillment of the law. Christ came as the fulfillment of the law. Of the law and prophets. Again, verse 17 Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Again, when Jesus began his teaching ministry, it didn't take him long to create quite a disturbance. I mean, he really ruffled the feathers of the religious leaders with what he taught on things like Sabbath. And, and, and cleansing, like, like, like the religious leaders, they were not happy with Jesus' take on such issues. Just think of who Jesus was too. He was so unlike most of the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. He hung out with sinners and tax collectors. He said things they would never say. He did things. I mean, he allowed his disciples to pluck the heads of grain and eat them again on the Sabbath. He just did things that really, really made the religious leaders upset. So you can kind of understand... That in this context, there would be accusations coming against Jesus that he's trying to abolish the law. This, this Jesus guy, he's coming in, and he's teaching with authority, and he's trying to get rid of our sacred text. He's trying to abolish that, which holds us together as the people of... You can see how those accusations might be made. But Jesus sets the record straight, doesn't he? In verse 17, he's like, I have not come to abolish the law of the prophets, which means the Old Testament, by the way. I've not come to abolish them. I've come to actually fulfill them. Jesus is not emphasizing the negative here. Rather, he's emphasizing the positive. I've come to fulfill them. But then we ask, well, what does that mean, though? What does it mean that he's come to fulfill them? Here's what we must understand as we approach this text. So much could be said. I'm just really praying that the clarity will come by God's Spirit and his word, too must understand this, okay? The entire Old Testament, which is the law, that's what the law and the prophets refers to here. The law, the first five books of the Old Testament, the prophets, the remainder here, symbolizing that, representing that. The, the primary or the entire Old Testament carries with it, listen, a prophetic function. Okay, so the Old Testament is ultimately pointing forward prophetically to the Messiah that is to come. Okay, so Matthew 11, verse 13 says this, okay? So just a few chapters from where we are right now. For all the prophets and the law prophesied, right, is, is predicting, is prophesying 
the future of Christ. It says until John, because John the Baptist referred to you. John the Baptist was the inauguration of the new covenant. He came as prophesied in the Old Testament to prepare the way of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So the point here is that the prophets and the law, they serve as a prophetic function looking forward again to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who will come as fulfillment to the law and the prophets. Another way to say it is this. Jesus is the completion of the Old Testament or the fulfillment or the continuation of the Old Testament. I mean, just think of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 here too. It says this, for all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. All the promises of God, referring to the Old Testament, find their yes in Christ. That is why it is through Christ, him, that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Jesus, I'm not come to abolish the Old Testament. No, no, no. I've come to fulfill the Old Testament. The Old Testament ultimately points to me, is what he is saying. And I'm the only one, Jesus says, who can do that. Do you know that, just if we just, a little side note, but really on point, off point, but good. You know, Jesus uh, personally fulfilled more than 300 Old Testament uh, prophecies. Over 300, over 300. Do you know that there was actually a group of mathematicians that took an in-depth study of the likelihood or probability that one man could fulfill eight of those? Group of mathematicians did a study. Again, the probability of one man fulfilling just eight of those prophecies, and they came to the conclusion, an in-depth study, really, really smart men and women, they said the likelihood of one man fulfilling eight of those prophecies made in the Old Testament was one in ten to the power of 17. Tried to trick you there. So one in ten to the power of 17, how, how big is that? It's really, really, really big. In fact, like the illustration goes, if you filled the state of Texas, let's say Ontario is pretty similar size, and you filled it with, uh, I think they said $2 coins, up to two feet, and it covered the entire province. That's, that's pretty big. And you ask a guy to go out and find that one coin in the midst of two feet of coins across the entire province of Ontario and say, good luck. And the likelihood of him finding that one coin, that would be the likelihood of one person being able to fulfill, you know, eight, eight prophecies, let alone 300. Yet Jesus Christ is the answer, yes, to every single promise and prophecy made in the Old Testament because he is awesome. Because Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Because he came, again, as the promised one to change the world. And he did, and he is, and he will. Loved ones, be encouraged. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Now on this too, right? So the Old Testament, here's the reality for a lot of us, right? So we have our Bible. A lot of us here right now, we need to grow in knowledge of this book. Because the more we do, man, the more... The more our, our worship is enhanced, the more that our, our knowledge and wisdom is kind of fulfilled, the more we just, we, our minds get blown by the reality of the continuity and unity found within the Bible. I just, again, you, you and I have one life. T take the time to dig into the Word of God. Like, go beyond right now, Sunday morning. I'm, so many of us are here right now, wait, I'm telling you, like, our institute is awesome here, Hope Institute. We offer incredible courses to help you grow in the knowledge leading to love of Jesus Christ. So that's why I love biblical theology so much. What is biblical theology? Biblical theology, in essence, it traces the historical thread throughout Scripture and brings the Bible as one book into a unified whole. 
A lot of us might have a verse here, a verse there, pictures here. But biblical theology traces so the Bible becomes one book, one story of redemption that, again, enhances our worship, enlarges our perspective, and often will blow up. Some of my greatest moments of worship has been I'm in this book and I see things I haven't seen before. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is, there's no way man just wrote this book by themselves. There's no way. This is a supernatural book by God, absolutely incredible and awesome. And then your love for Jesus Christ goes up and up and up and up and up. We need more of us to be on that page. So just by way of some uh, examples of biblical theology on the screen for you here as well, mixed in with a little bit of typology too, but in its, in its essence, biblical theology, consider this, okay? So what the first Adam failed to do, of course, Adam and Eve, first Adam, when he sinned with his wife Eve, they brought sin into the world, thereby bringing death to us all. What the first Adam could not do, again, Adam becomes a type of Christ, but also a foreshadow of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who would come and perfectly fulfill the mandate of not sinning, thereby equaling everlasting life. We needed the second Adam, Jesus Christ, to come, and everything is pointing towards the one who would come that no other human being before Jesus Christ could do. Consider the Passover in Exodus. The Passover in Exodus, of course, and we should know the story of the Exodus and the Passover within the book of Exodus and the Exodus of God's people out of Egypt and the angel of death that was to pass over. The instructions were to find a pure and spotless lamb and to sacrifice the lamb and take the blood of that lamb and put it on the doorposts of the house. Thereby, when the angel of death sees the blood, it will be passed over your house and then your child will not die. So isn't it amazing then that the Passover in Exodus, of course, is ultimately foreshadowing the Passover Lamb of God, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when Jesus Christ is sent as the Lamb of God to die on the cross. He dies on Passover, on the day of Passover, the same time when thousands and thousands and thousands of lambs are being sacrificed literally in the temple and the blood is flowing down the streets. At that exact time, the Lamb of God is dying on the cross as the perfect sacrifice because he is the fulfillment of every single sacrifice that went before him. I mean, it's just a wonder and awesome to understand again how this is taking place again through one person, Jesus Christ. Consider the temple. The temple, tabernacle temple, again, in the Old Covenant, right? The temple contained the Holy of Holies. One time a year, the high priest would enter in to represent the people, right? And make a sacrifice on behalf of the people. One time a year, one person got to go into the Holy of Holies of God. When Jesus Christ dies on the cross, the temple curtain, in the temple, again, not too far from where he died, is torn from top to bottom, signifying the act and love of God who came on behalf, again, of sinful humanity, sacrificed his son, and his son willingly died, that now the temple curtain was torn. Why is that so big? Now access to God is available to all by faith and grace in Jesus Christ alone. Consider the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament. This is completed in Jesus Christ, again, when he's dying on the cross, and he says those three words, it is finished. What is finished? Payment for sin is made for humanity, for those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus dies in that moment, again, as the only fulfillment, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, and renders the temple system at that time obsolete because Christ came. I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill, again, the promises made throughout the Old Testament. Lastly, the priesthood of the Old Testament, again, a foreshadow of the great high priest, Jesus Christ. 
right? What, what was so limited. The high priest under the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, it was a sinful man like you and me. And so it could only go so far. Fallen, sinful, he himself would die. Jesus Christ came as the great high priest to be the mediator between sinful man and a holy God. He lived the perfect life. He died again that perfect death, thereby reconciling man back to God. Only Jesus Christ could do that, as it says in 1 Timothy 2.5, Jesus Christ himself, again, the great high priest that did what no other human being could ever do. Don't you see? The entire Old Testament is pointing to the fulfilled promises found in one person alone, and his name is Jesus Christ. Now, now, when you see that slide right there, like what, like, what should that make our hearts do? It makes mine want to worship him more. Does it yours? I mean, just like, how do you look at that and, and, and not love Jesus more? I mean, that's the whole point. To sit there and say only one person could ever boast of such things. Only one person could save us. Only one person, ultimately, this book is about The Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the most influential person who has ever lived. Second place isn't even close because he is who he said he was. The Son of God, the Lamb of God, again, the glory of God, the plan of God, the gift of God, the light of the world sent by God, Jesus Christ. Again, take some time today, today. For sure this week. Just, just reflect on what we just were taught. I've not come to abolish the law of Jesus. I've come to fulfill it. And just what is our response to Jesus Christ now? In all that he's done and all that he is. And his soon return to come and gather all those who are his as well. It just, it should really make us be like, wow, we are so humbled by your beauty and glory and all that you are. Okay? So just by way of summary of what we're learning here, D.A. Carson, he says this, okay? He says in what Jesus says here, Jesus sees this life not in opposition to the Old Testament. Those are the accusations, basically. He's like, no, 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 no. I'm not in opposition to the Old Testament. Rather, I see my life as bringing fruition to what the Old Testament points towards. I am the completion, Jesus says. I am the fulfillment, Jesus says. Again, I am the one who has come to be the yes to the promises um, of God. So it's the law and the prophets, listen carefully, the law and the prophets that find their continuity in Christ, that find their fulfillment in Christ. I have come not to abolish them, I've come to fulfill them. Now look at verse 18 now, okay? Look at verse 18. And he goes on, he says, For truly I say to you, a statement of great truth, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now what do we see here? One thing we see absolutely, we see how Jesus viewed Scripture. And this is a big deal. Uh, Many pastors, commentators, they say this is the most explicit declaration of Jesus' view of the inspiration of Scripture in the Gospels. Notice what Jesus says here. He again says, Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. This is a massive statement of divine inspiration and imperishability of Scripture made by Jesus. What Jesus says here, he says, Not even the smallest letter, iota, Even further, not even the smallest part of a letter, dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So if we take that into terms of the English language, Jesus is so resolute 
on the divine inspiration, in this case, of the Old Testament, the inspired, imperishable, infallible, again, written word of God. In the English language, he says this. He says, the dot on an I will not be removed, nor the cross on a T will not be removed either, until all is accomplished. Heaven and earth will pass away before the dot of an I is removed from the divinely inspired word of God. It's a major, major deal. It's a major, major statement as well. So we're learning here, the Old Testament doesn't just contain truth, as some people want to suggest. The Old Testament is truth. The Old Testament itself is truth. It's the very word of God right from the lips of Jesus here. Now, why is this important? Because in our day, there are some churches and people who have taken issue with the veracity of the Old Testament. That's a common, again, statement of doubt in our day. To the people who take issue with the inspiration of the veracity of the Old Testament, Jesus just took issue with you. I mean, Jesus flat out took you to task right there with this statement. Not an iota or a dot will pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away. He says the, the law, that the word of God is more enduring than creation itself. Think about that. Creation will pass away. My word will never pass away. So Jesus here wonderfully affirms the Old Testament. And why, do, why does Jesus wonderfully affirm? Because it's written by God. But the Old Testament ultimately points to him as the fulfillment. When something is prophetic, think about this, when something is prophetic, how is that prophetic statement legitimized? The prophetic statement is legitimized in its fulfillment. So the Old Testament is legitimized in the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus is saying. I'm legitimizing the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. I haven't come to abolish them. They're amazing. I've come to fulfill them as they all point to me ultimately. Now he says, until all is accomplished. Why? Because the Old Testament pointed to his fulfillment in life, death, and resurrection. And yet, there's still his second coming that has to happen as well. So all is not yet accomplished. Heaven and earth will pass away my on an outa, a dot, or my words will never pass away until all is accomplished. So let, let me just point out here too, because this is a serious issue among certain sections of people who call themselves Christians, who seek to cast major doubt on portions of the Old Testament or try to get rid of it altogether, okay? Those who question the Old Testament, you have to then question also Jesus Christ. Because if you don't have the Old Testament, you can't have Jesus, because Jesus has said, I, mean, I come with a package here. You can't have one without the other. That's what Jesus is irrefutably saying right here in this passage. He's absolutely affirming the inspiration, imperishability, divine nature of the very word of God. Again, the Old Testament in this sense. And we also, of course, believe that about the New Testament um, as well. The Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. Again, you can't have one without the other. So very, very, very important for us to understand. Christ is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Point number two is this. Christ came to compel us to greatness. Christ also came to compel us to greatness. That's an interesting point, eh? It sounds like an interesting. Oh, what does that mean, compel us to greatness? Look at verse 19. Take a look. Let's be students of the word. Good attention today. Let's go, let's go. Let's stay awake here. Verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes, loosens, lets go of one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great. Here's the path to greatness. You want to be great in this world? Here it is, right here. Greatness is for those who does and teach the commandments regarding the kingdom of heaven. So what Jesus is doing here, okay, listen carefully. What Jesus is doing, he's drawing a vital connection between the law of God and the kingdom of God. Obedience to the law of God and the connection of those who are living for the kingdom of God. And then in in maybe simpler terms, he's saying this. Kingdom greatness comes from kingdom obedience. Those who obey the commandments of the kingdom, they will be called great within the kingdom of heaven. Let's unpack it this way according to Matthew 5 verse 19 on the screen for you. Two subpoints beside me, behind me, okay? Greatness, according to verse 19, is for those who hold fast to his commandments. Greatness is holding fast to the commandments of God. Again, he says, whoever relaxes one of these commandments will be called the least. So what does it mean to relax the commandments of the Lord? It means to, um, to loosen, to lose hold of the word, God's word, listen, and to, loose, to, to loosen the hold of its authority over our lives. Um, it speaks of people, in a translation says, those who annul God's word or annul his commands. Why do people try to annul the commandments of God? Because if they can loosen or annul God's commands, it no longer has authority over their lives. And it doesn't have authority over their lives, and they can live and sin as they please. Jesus says those who relax the commandments and the clarity of the word of God, they will be called least in the kingdom. So the implication here is, you know, quite severe. Those whose conscience is decreasingly bound by the commandments of God. He's speaking of those people. Those who ignore certain portions of scripture. The people who water down sections of scripture they don't like. Happening all the time in our day right now. There's massive pressure to do so. The people who compromise or capitulate to the pressure from the culture and diminish the authority of God's word. Why? Because they want to be liked by man more than fear God. Huge problem in our day. Huge problem. All of us are tempted by this all the time. There's the fear of man that replaces the fear of God. And we're filled with the fear of man. We start to discard the, the, the truth of God's word and, in, and, and capitulate to the pressure of the culture that is around us. Jesus has big issues with that here. He says those who relax, they will be called least uh, in the kingdom. So let's be clear here too, okay? And this is really important. Jesus will hold in lowest esteem those who hold his word in lowest esteem. Say it again. Jesus will hold, he's just saying right here in, in, in verse 19, he will hold those in lowest esteem, those who hold his commandments, his word pertaining to the kingdom in lowest esteem. Now, I don't believe we can say this means anything about future salvation, that people, again, somehow this is based on salvation, but it is indicating the low quality of their discipleship, because Christ here says, in the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of heaven, both least and great, they're all in the kingdom of heaven. However, if you want to be great, if I want to be great in the kingdom, then we must hold fast to his commandments with all we've got. Think about it too, right? How many churches over the course of history have been pushed aside 
because they pushed aside the truth within the pulpit, within their church. Think about it. In our nation right now, the liberal church is a train wreck. And so many of the liberal churches a couple generations ago were robust for the gospel. But you give it a little bit of relaxing, a little bit of loosening, a little bit of neglecting, and you start to diminish the authority of God's word and start to live by the idolatry of the culture, and you increasingly become more irrelevant and irrelevant in terms of actual kingdom authority and kingdom fruitfulness. It's all around us. I mean, the warning is there. And many have taken that path, again, to their utter shame and divine judgment uh, as well. We must be understanding that Jesus unequivocally says greatness are those who do not relax his commandments, but teach his commandments, hold his commandments. That's so important here too. By the way, just, just by the way, again, lots to go through today. There's so much I could say. I'm trying to say enough that it gives us understanding and clarity. When we look at verses 18 and 19, okay, so this does not mean... When Jesus says, again, whoever relaxes the least of these commandments, this does not mean that every single ceremonial law in the Old Testament must be observed. Obviously, that, 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 that can't be true. Now, why do we say that? Well, what's happening here and what's about to happen, literally in our text and as Jesus goes on, Jesus is about to bring his interpretation upon the law and the prophets. It doesn't diminish the law and the prophets, he's adding again his interpretation with his arrival to how they are to be lived out from this point forward. Just think about it. In the next six sections of Matthew 5, which is our next six weeks, the next six sections, Jesus will start off by saying, you have heard it said, Old Testament, I say to you, New Testament, New Covenant. You've heard it said, now I bring to you my interpretation and how this is to be applied in your life going forward under the new covenant. Not diminishing the Old Testament. He is revealing the new interpretation of how it's lived out from our lives. The Old Testament is to be respected and revered and obeyed according to to its infallible truth. But Jesus is again saying, I am here now to point the new way for you in terms of what these promises ultimately point to. I hope we're getting this right now. Let me just take another lap around the track here. ESV Study Bible says this. Just another way of saying the same thing because I want you guys to get it. The entire Old Testament is the expression of God's will. 100%. Nothing wrong with the Old Testament. The entire Old Testament is the expression of God's will. But with the arrival of Jesus, the new covenant, his ministry, and what he came to do is now going to be taught according to Jesus' interpretation uh, pertaining to its intent and meaning. The entire Old Testament expression of God's will, but now it's to be taught according to the interpretation of Jesus as its intent and meaning now going forward. And that's what Jesus Christ, you know, came to do, to teach and explain. This is what we're going to be doing the next several weeks, well, like really this year, through the Sermon on the Mount. It's going to be great, has been great, will be great. So greatness, listen, is holding fast to the commandments, obedience pertaining to the kingdom. Secondly, though, we, we see this, just part B of point two. Greatness is also teaching others to do the same. 
So if you look at verse 19, the second half of verse 19, he says, But whoever does them commandments and teaches them the commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's so interesting. Whoever does them and teach them, those who don't do them and teach others not to do them will be called the least. Those who do the commandments and teach others will be called the greatest in the kingdom. What are we learning here, church? This is very important. It's not only personal obedience that leads to greatness. It's teaching others, discipling others in the commandments of the kingdom that leads to greatness as well. Think of a great cross-reference, the Great Commission, right? The Great Commission, Matthew 28. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them, teaching them to observe everything I have. Anyone? Anyone? Commanded you. Amen. That's great. Everything I've commanded you, right? The whole purpose of the Great Commission is to go forward, to make disciples, to see people baptized, and teach them the commandments of Christ. That's the path to greatness. Jesus says, these are the people that will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So what a moment of of perspective this is for us then, right? Like, kingdom greatness is not in the wealthy. Thank goodness for that. Kingdom greatness is not in those who are super smart and have the most degrees. Kingdom greatness is not those who are people really good in business or strong business acumen. Greatness, fundamentally, boil it down, is for those who love his commandments, disciple others, and multiply themselves. To see people live for Jesus Christ and the kingdom. Let me ask you a question right now then. According to what Jesus said in in verse 19. Are you pursuing greatness? You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, are you pursuing greatness? Are you seeking obedience? The commandments of Jesus Christ. And are you teaching others to do the same? Okay, so here's, here's, again, super important moments, okay? So... We all have one life that Christ has given us here on earth, and then eternity is coming pretty fast. If we're saved in Jesus Christ, you have been given a mission to expand the kingdom through your life, in your home, in your family, and beyond church. You, you have, I have a gift that needs to be used. We have a mission that needs to be served. How many of us, right, are going through life and, and the reality of multiplying ourselves through the commandments of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, it's, it's just not happening. It's not happening. That should be a problem. That should be a problem. And by the way, all the events of our world right now that are happening, all the craziness across the globe, here in our nation, and beyond, of course, across the seas as well, what does the Bible say that that is supposed to get us to do in the end of the day? Like, the Bible has a lot to say about eschatology and end times observances. The end result of those things is stay awake, wake up, live with sobriety, live with urgency, stop living for the world. Like, like, church, church, when you see this stuff happening around us right now, Those are massive sirens. Stop being an idiot. Can I say it that way? Right? Stop living for the world. Live for Jesus Christ. When you see the horrific events across our earth and you see all the different things happening of just like natural sin and human sin, those are all messages is live for what matters. Live for the kingdom. Live for Jesus Christ. Loosen your grip on your wallet. Tighten your grip on the kingdom. Loosen your grip on social media. Tighten your grip on the Word of God. Loosen your grip on your hobby. Tighten your grip on a passion of prayer in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what is being said to us. And if we can't see it now, then something's wrong, right? 
Again, Scripture tells us again and again, you observe the signs, not to try to predict what's going to happen in the date. You observe them to be a sin. i got to get my life moving in the right direction because this thing's going to be over in a hurry. And all that matters is what's been done for the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, listen to the urgency of, I want to pursue true greatness defined by Jesus, seeing others taught in the commands of the kingdom while I have the chance to do so. God help us to do that. Think of the men in this room. Men, I challenge me and I challenge you. You got a mandate, man, to see the kingdom flow through your life. You got a mandate. And so do I. I take that. Like sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night, I'm like, man, I got to do more. Not to earn favor with God, just my responsibility. I mean, obviously women. I mean, obviously children. All of us here. I mean, moms, women, mother types. You got a mandate upon your life. You got a mandate, people we have influence over within our lives. What are we talking about? What are the things we're passionate about? What kind of discipleship is going through our lives or not going through our lives? You want to be great in the kingdom? I mean, I pray we want to be great according to Jesus. He's like, I'm showing you how. Those will be called great. They love the Lord. They love the kingdom. And they pray. They seek to serve. Not to earn more favor with God because they just love the Lord Jesus Christ. They know that's where blessing comes from. It's interesting too, eh? Like just a few verses from now. I can't wait to get some of these passages. Even in chapter 6, Jesus says, Do not store up treasure on earth that moth and rust destroy. Rather, store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. For those are the things that will actually last into all of eternity. So Christ came to fulfill the law. Christ came to compel us to greatness. God help us with that. And thirdly and finally, Christ came to provide us entrance into the kingdom. Christ came because he's the only one who can provide entrance to the kingdom. God, help us in this last verse here. I pray, God, you save lives even in this moment. Verse 20. For I tell you, Jesus says, unless your righteousness, listen to this, exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, look how clear he is, eh? You will never enter. Like sometimes you might enter, you might possibly, you know, you have a chance. No, no, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Who's that for today? Like you're here right now. Maybe you're new to church. Maybe you're an overflower. Maybe you're just like you're listening, you're tuning in. Maybe you've been around church for a while. But, but again, like look what Jesus says. Again, he's make sure. I t- unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, unless that's you and me, you will never I mean, that, that's a major statement. You will never enter heaven. Never enter. So like, like, he got my attention there. Like, I'm listening. I'm like, well, where's this going? See, see, just in case we thought legalism was the way to heaven, right? There's a lot of people in our world that believe, I'm a good person. I'm going to heaven. No, you're not. No, you're not, because you're not good enough. You're like, oh, I'm pretty good, but you're not good enough. Are you perfect? If you say you're perfect, but we got other issues, I'll see you after the church, and we'll <laughs> do something about that, all right? But we're not. All of us sin. But a lot of people believe, well, if I, if, if I do enough good works, then I'll, be, I'll gain righteousness. No, but you'll never be perfectly righteous. So just in case you thought salvation by works was the way, or legalism was the way to heaven, Jesus completely annihilates that and blows it up in verse 20. Because some people, reading verse 19, say, whoever holds fast to my commandments 
will enter it, and they're like, okay, hold fast, yeah, yeah, everything I can, serve the Lord, I'm going to get in there, I'm going to do everything, and be obedient, everything, I'm going to do, I'm going to do it. And that's you, whoa, 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 he's like, I want to make sure we don't misunderstand, and we don't, and we don't misinterpret. He's like, you need a righteousness that is greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, why would he say that? Well, think about it. The scribes and the Pharisees were meticulously holding to every detail of the law, like hundreds and hundreds of laws that they were trying to be obedient to, to the point they even invented their own traditions on top of that. The scribes and the Pharisees were pictures. They were obsessed with external righteousness. They were obsessed with a rule-based righteousness, outward performance, appearance, all the details of what was seen. But Jesus came and blunt truth many times. He's like, you completely missed the point. You'll never be righteous enough. Now what Jesus does is he really is going to upset people. He throws down a whole new standard. He says, I'm not seeking a righteousness now of the scribes and the Pharisees. I'm not seeking an external righteousness. I'm not seeking people who can walk around and behave well. I'm not seeking people who can follow a few rules and kind of dress in a certain way and act like they have it all together on the outside. He's like, no, 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 no. I want way more than that. I want a perfect righteousness on the inside. I want an internal righteousness that is perfect in heart and without sin. In fact, he says, unless you are perfectly righteous in with no sin ever, you're not getting into heaven ever, ever. So if you're listening to this, you're like, what is he talking about? Who can possibly fulfill such a command? No one. It's impossible in human terms for that kind of righteousness to be established on our own. So what is Jesus doing? Is he, is he sentencing everyone to destruction forever? He's not. He's, listen, he's sowing the seeds of the reason he came. He is sowing the seeds for the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only one who can save us from ourselves. Right here when he says, your righteousness must exceed that, the scribes and the Pharisees, he says, I want an inner pure heart righteousness of perfection. He's sowing the seeds for justification, innocence from God, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Okay, I'll say that again. He's sowing these seeds for justification by faith, by faith alone, grace alone, in Christ alone alone. Jesus is demanding a deeper righteousness. He's demanding a righteousness of the heart. He's demanding an inward righteousness. In many ways, what's he doing? His first sentence of his sermon, Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who understand they are spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who know they have nothing to offer. Blessed are those who know they are utterly sinful in and of themselves, for theirs is the kingdom of of heaven. Why does he say that? Because those who know they have no righteousness of themselves, they know they need the righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. They are the people that get saved and enter into the kingdom of heaven. Let me just recap. This is a very, very important moment. Again, I'm not sure exactly who's here. God does. I want to be as clear as I can, okay? Let's just unpack righteousness and the gospel right now. Number one, perfect righteousness is required for heaven. Perfect righteousness. Number two, all humans are wholly unrighteous due to sin. I'll be the first to say, man, I sin every day. By myself, I'm toast, absolutely dead. Brutal, brutal sin in my heart. Past, present, future. 
On my own, I'm dead. Number three, Jesus came as perfect righteousness. And number four, Jesus offers the gift of righteousness and he might take our sin at the same time. So perfect righteousness is required to gain entrance to heaven. We are completely unrighteous. We're dead in ourselves. Christ is perfectly righteous. And Jesus Christ, in his love and unfathomable grace, offers to give us his righteousness, and he wants to take our sin. That sounds like a pretty good deal, doesn't it? I wish more people would say yes to that offer. Let's just unpack in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 here. Look at this. Look at this. Okay, here's a verse that just, this is the great exchange. Theologically, it's called the great exchange. For our sake, he, God, Father, made him Christ. For our sake, God made his son, Jesus Christ, to be sin, even though he was perfect, to be sin, to take on our sin. Even though he was perfect, he had no sin, so that in Jesus Christ, we might, be, we might become, we might be granted, given the righteousness of God. Maybe some people here right now, this is the first time you've ever seen this verse and understood it. That would be awesome. The great exchange. Jesus says, right, God the Father sent his son to become sin for us, even though Christ had no sin but perfectly righteous, so that in Christ alone, only in Jesus Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. One last way to explain this. Let's go to that animation. We said this, like, I think it was last Christmas. I loved it so much, man. It's a great teaching tool, and it just blesses my heart as well. This, and I'll read it for you if you can't see at the top there. This man here in his sinful robes, depicting his heart. God, I'm so sorry for my sins. Can you forgive me? See, for our sake, he made him to be sin. He carried the cross, willing to die to give his life. That he might die in our place because he was perfect. He was, he was without sin. This moment he comes up, Jesus Christ in his perfect righteousness, he sees us in our sinful unrighteousness. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Because he loves you and me so much, Jesus Christ comes and wants to embrace us and love us and thereby exchanging robes of filth for robes of righteousness. He takes on our sin. We get his righteousness. Jesus Christ goes to the cross and dies to make payment for our sin, paid in full, and say, it is finished for all those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, I love how he's there, and he's just like, what just happened? What just happened? I mean, I deserve to that. I deserve to take the cross. I deserve to be punished. I deserve the wrath of God. I deserve to die an eternal death. Yet I'm standing here in perfect, but I, but I, I, don't, I don't deserve this. I've done nothing. To, I love this last picture. of You can't, probably can't see it, but there's a little tear in his eye. Amen. Because you're sitting there in the court of eternity, and you're standing before a holy, perfect God, and God's like, why should I let you into heaven? And you're standing there in absolute filth and sin and horrific sin all over yourself and same for God and he's about to stand on the gavel and say guilty as he should and Christ walks in as our advocate stands beside us father I know Robbie deserves death I know he rightly deserves eternal death but I want his sin on me and I want my righteousness on him and in that moment the love of the father and the son they agree this is the plan I get Christ's righteousness. I've done nothing good. He gets all my sin. He's sentenced to death. I'm sentenced to life. 
I look at Jesus. That's not fair. And Jesus says, you're right. It's not fair. But it is love. And that's why I came. And the Father is 100% behind this. It's his plan. That's how much I love you. I sent my son to die in your place. Will you not receive the gift of righteousness by faith and grace that you might cast all your sin upon my son, Jesus Christ? Again, theologically, just like, why would anyone turn that down? Here's why. Pride, arrogance, unbelief. That's why people turn it down. But once again, you're here right now. Jesus Christ offers the gift of eternal righteousness to you. Oh, man, I just wonder right now, like, hey, in Orangeville right now, is there someone needs to be saved in Orangeville right now? Like someone overflow right now that God is leading you to salvation for the first time ever? You've seen Jesus Christ, that he is the gift of righteousness. But you've got to confess him as Lord and say, you've got to believe in him. You've got to give your life. You've got to turn from sin. You've got to repent. Jesus, you are the answer. You are Savior. You are Lord. I'm done living for myself. I now live for you. I give up. I believe in you. I love you. I serve you. How about in this room right now? Like today is the day of salvation. I implore you, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, be reconciled to Jesus Christ. Implore you. Don't wait another second. Receive the gift of righteousness. Give him all your sin. And let the love of Christ envelop you. Never to leave you again. Please, Lord, save people today. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray. Please, Lord, save people today. Jesus Christ came as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Jesus Christ came to compel us to greatness. Jesus Christ came to show us the way to righteousness, him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Oh, Lord, move, I pray. Again, save May you just, oh, transform, change. We need you so much. We need you so much. May it be so. We love you. Use a song. Use a song. Just worship and praise. Just think, loved ones, as you sing, just think. He is the great high priest. He is the one who tore the temple curtain. He is the one who ended sacrifices. He is the fulfillment. He is the promises of God. He is love. He is grace. He is awesome. Let us worship you now, Lord Jesus, I pray. Loud voices, full hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.